Today, we're delighted to have at the History Cafe the author of a new drama series for Radio 4, Nazis, The Road to Power, Jonathan Myerson. He's an old friend. Welcome, Jonathan. Hi there. It's great to be here. Well, it's very good to have you at the History Cafe. Now, yeah, your Nazis, The Road to Power follows Adolf Hitler, essentially, from being a confused corporal at the end of the First World War, in hospital, in fact, uh, eyes yep. hurt by gas until the beginning of 1933 when he becomes Chancellor of Germany. It's a massive subject. You must have lived with this for, for a long time. It's been about a year. I mean, actually, this is a follow-up to a previous podcast we did a, On Nuremberg. a couple of years ago about the Nuremberg trial. Mm. So uh, I had a short break, short non-Nazi break, and then back to this. Yeah, so it's been... It's, I've lived... Hitler pays the mortgage, for Christ's sake, you know. <laughs> yeah. Good to see you at the History Cafe. This is where we come to talk about historical stories everyone knows. We want to try out some new ideas. I'm Penelope Middlebow. And I'm John Roseback. And we're revisiting stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens. We're talking to Jonathan Myerson, the author of a new drama series for Radio 4, BBC's Radio 4, Nazis, The Road to Power. So, Jonathan, researching your series, you must have read a well, mountain of books. I wonder, if, does anything stand out, a book about which you'd say, if you're going to read just one thing about the Nazis, then you should read this? No, because they all do, the good ones all do a different thing and they do it well and they, they, they focus in on, on, obviously you've got the major biographies. I mean, what was what was frustrating about this project is when I started it and when I still knew relatively little about the rise of the Nazi party I said to myself well I said to others I don't want it to be a biography of Hitler it's very hard for it not to be a biography of Hitler basically the Nazi party is Hitler and Hitler is the Nazi party so you've got the major biographies of Hitler Kershaw and I I very much like Ulrich the German biography those are the two more recent ones you can go back to Joachim Fest and then you if you want the more political side yeah, you go sort of Richard Evans for the rise and fall of the Third Reich, but that's more like he—he, he, you know, he—he he drills down into sort of voting demographics and things like that. Uh, or then, you know, I've got a whole book just about the thirty days lead up to Hitler becoming Chancellor, January thirty-three, in other words, and that in itself is fascinating—the political mistakes of all those involved. So it's—it's it's sort of. Go for what you want, really. Yeah, and we can put some of those details of those books on our website, historycafe.org. I guess it, I suppose it depends on the extent to which you believe history was made by individuals or by the broader context. But perhaps we'll, we'll come back, perhaps we'll come back yeah. to that as we go on to talk. Jonathan, I wanted to ask, um, historians at least, but many writers write about their own times, even when they're obviously writing about something in the past. It reflects their current preoccupations. So... You know, why did you choose, well, Nuremberg before and Hitler and why now? Do you have personal reasons? Not, not really. But actually, once, once the idea was, was mooted, what it struck me is it's time for a new generation to get the facts in line. I think, um, you know, uh, uh, right back on the Nuremberg podcast, I think I, I showed management uh, episode one, I think it was, which was about the capture of the major Nazi war criminals. And back came the note, a perfectly reasonable note from the under 40s, who is Himmler? 
you know, it was a drama note saying, explain who Himmler is in the script. And I think that's a pretty good wake-up call, you know, because I think those of us with greyer hair, yeah, Himmler, we know who Himmler is. We know where to place him, roughly, you know. Those with darker hair don't. And mm. I think it's time for a wake-up call to that. So it's so it's not a personal thing, but I'm I'm very glad to be doing it, and I'm actually quite glad to be doing it, so to speak, for a younger generation. I mean, to try to bring it alive, to reimagine various things and take new readers of any age through that process of how compromises were made. And I think the, the, the real issue is to watch what is acceptable discourse, because that's what the rise of the Nazi party is about. It's about allowing acceptable discourse to shift. And that's where I think it's about now. Yeah, interesting. I mean, at the moment, we have these right-wing regimes all over the world uh, beginning to appear. And you wonder whether that's actually where the discourse is moving and whether this is, as you say, a moment to be talking about this kind of discourse. Yes, and I think it's also about how you want to be woken up to the methodologies of, of the right-wing parties, not contrived methodologies, what they sort of naturally do, you know, this 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 othering of a group, this sense of victimization of needing an opponent. You've got to watch all these things. And 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 what I learned, and I, I can't say I knew this a year ago, is the Nazi vote, you know, when they finally peaked at about sort of 40%, it was a protest vote. And yet the discourse had moved for that to be an acceptable form of protest. And you've got to watch that because you've, as as we proved in 2016, yeah, you've Brexit. always got a protest vote out there if you want it, especially when times are bad, disgruntlement. You've got to watch what's an, you know, mm, absolutely. There's, there's a perfectly acceptable protest vote called the Liberal Democrats in this country. We don't need another one. <laughs> I mean, it, it is interesting just to try and think about how much this was to do with Hitler and how much it was to do with these other things. I mean, what's interesting about the Nazis is they do change their appeal. They, they talk about the Versailles Treaty to start with. They talk about socialism to start with. And then by yep. the end of the 20s, they're talking about blood and soil and a very much older idea of what Germany's about. And behind all this is the, is the voter. And because the voter, you don't hear much of the voter in your series because you're concentrating on what's going on within the Nazi party. Yeah. How do you solve that problem that behind what's going on are all these other deep factors, the voters and so on, which you yeah. can't really bring into the series because you want to concentrate on these. Well, I mean, you could. You'd have to do it another way. You know, something like Heimat, the German TV series, where they, they stayed and started in a village, really. And they mm -hmm. said, let's look at the sort of person who was attracted to voting Nazi. I'm starting at the other end, right at the top, you know, the, the uh, those who think they're in charge and those who are in charge. So I can't really get into that. But as I was writing, I was thinking, you know, I'm a British writer. So what to what extent could this happen in Britain? You know, we're not like crazy Americans. Um, and I think one of the key differences, I could name several others, but I think one of the key differences is, is this sort of German belief that there was a Messiah to come. Hitler's place in, in the Alps, uh, Berchtesgaden, it overlooked the hills where they thought Frederick Barbarossa had died and he was going to rise up again and lead them. I'm not saying every voter voted on that basis, but that was a sort of key national myth that there is a destiny to be to be achieved and that and that various chunks of Europe belong to Germany. Doesn't he begin by saying he's the servant or the messenger or something? The drummer, the drummer, the drummer is boy. the word he the used. The drummer, yeah. yeah. So a kind of John the Bat. He says... Oh, no, I'm not. It's not me. I'm just the John the Baptist here. He used the word drummer indeed. Mm. And also, let's face it, they were one nil down. They wanted to equalise. Mm. And that was that was another major motivation, really. You, you mean from the First World War? First World War, exactly. And, and it, it really hurt. And also, 
I think one needs to remember it, it, it triply hurt because until a couple of months before the armistice, the German people were told they were winning. It was that the, the extent of the defeat was kept from them. So, so it came as a triple shock. You know, it wasn't like it's getting worse. It's getting worse. It's getting worse. Okay. Let's have a surrender, which is obviously what the generals did. The German people were, were thrown into a state of shock and they were still on French soil also, you know, so it, it, you know, the, the, the big stab in the back myth that the generals were stabbed in the back had a certain public credence quite easily. We're talking to Jonathan Marsden, who's a playwright, and we're talking particularly, I think, about how you transfer history into drama. Um, so I did want to talk to you about inventing history. And we, we, I mean, Netflix is doing a very good job with The Crown, not necessarily inventing it. Actually. Well, but, I'm going to disagree <laughs> making, with that, but anyway. Making up conversations between historical oh, yeah, yeah. characters. Quite, so, quite, yeah. yeah. Um, and your series is dialogue, you know, it consists of conversations between historical people. And yeah. how much of it did you have to, you know, invent? I assume most of Hitler's public speeches are real. Yeah, so there's so probably what, I don't know, 20% of the script is actual verbatim speeches, bits of, obviously, a sentence here, a sentence there, yeah. Mm. I think mm. where I would say to, uh, in defence of, as it were, the crown accusation, where they've just completely made things up, I haven't. And that every scene in the show is based on a rec- either a recorded incident where those two or three people met or it includes speeches in it which are drawn from a diary or a public utterance i, t- I tell you what i had a, i had an idea i've got in front of me here the the script of the entire show it runs to 444 pages uh, incidentally, 444 was the number of votes cast for the Enabling Act, which made Hitler dictator in 1933. <laughs> and he also filled on. the building with his SA stormtroopers, so I'm just looking around. Exactly, I've, I've got stormtroopers <laughs> down both aisles here. Um, give me a number between 1 and 444. I'll go to that page and I'll tell you what it's drawn from. OK, 371. 371. Here we go. So, ooh, crikey. So we're in quite late. We're in January 33. And what they... Nazi party whose national vote was declining, they decide to go and fight. It's very hard to, to explain uh, in drama, and I've sort of slightly submerged it. You've got the federal elections, which seem to come around almost every year because the government would fall. But then you also had state elections that could crop up at any time. And the Nazi party decided to go and campaign like hell in a place called Lipper Detmold, you know, a state which had the population of 1%, less than 1% of Germany. And they threw everything at it and their vote went up. They got 40% of 39.5% of the vote and took nine out of 21 seats in, in that state parliament. And what I've done here is I've invented a scene with Goebbels delightedly telling Hitler that. But then I've, I've used this character who's called Putzi Hamstengel, who is their foreign president. And he points out that actually in the conversation, this it's a good example of this because I, I don't know that this conversation ever happened. But Hamstengel, Putzi, let's call him, because it's much easier to pronounce than Hamstengel. And he was, what, German-American? Yes, exactly. Um, Putzi says, but hang on, we got more votes in the federal election in that place than this. And Hitler's pretty cool with him. Yes. Uh, yes. 39... 39.5% of the vote. Nine out of 21 seats. 
See, Putsy, I told you. That's uh, a 70% increase on last time. 70% more voters want the Nazi party. Except, and math was never my favourite, we've done worse than July last year. We got almost 4,000 more votes then. Didn't we? <sighs> Six months ago, I mean. The parliamentary elections. For Parliament. You're right, Putsy. Arithmetic is not something you should dabble in. I've started my editorial. From this small sector of the trenches, the offensive has been resumed. This is no time for lily-livered compromise. So, so the issue here is that all those people are for real. Their attitudes are for real. The statistics of the election are for real. The election actually oh, happened. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, where I've stretched it there, and it's interesting. You know, would Putsy have been that brave to point out that they did worse this time? But he's kind of a pretty stupid, thick-jawed American. So I thought he was the man for the job. Um, <laughs> so I pushed it slightly there. Except maybe he did. Um, I mean, he fell out with them by thirty-six. He had yes. to run away. Yeah. Um, the, the issue, Jonathan, he's one is, of your narrators, isn't he? In yes, that's right. Yes. The issue here is, isn't it? I mean, to what extent does being absolutely accurate matter? And I, and I think that's a quite a complicated question. But it depends what you mean by accurate. Do you mean accurate in terms of what was said exactly when it was said and exactly what was done, or do you mean accurate in terms of the inner meaning of what was going on? Darkest Hour, Churchill. Um, it, all that film, wonderful film actually, takes place in the bunker. Churchill didn't go into the bunker until after the Battle of Britain, so the whole kind of scenery yeah. is wrong. But it doesn't matter. Yeah. That really no, doesn't. That doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. No. No. For instance, here I'll just I'll just go on in the scene following that. I've got a meeting between von Papen, Hitler, and Ribbentrop, and Papen says, "I hear you met with Hugenberg, who controlled fifty-one centre members of parliament to which Hitler replies a man with a political vocabulary of 80 sentences that's a quote that's you know I can't remember Hitler wouldn't have said it or he would have been quoted saying it I mean you know he doesn't have any documents it might be I use Goebbels diaries a great deal as does every historian because they're incredibly revealing um so you know a lot often I would work in a sentence like that into the dialogue it's it's not it's not all made up so that gives you the problem of trying to make your characters sound credible with the stuff you invent that matches their real speeches as well yes you know so yes that, exactly exactly yeah. um and you know then in the scene i'm just scrolled on a bit papen says oh we we just won fantastically in lipper and uh papen says but you couldn't afford to repeat it i've heard about your unpaid bills your personal loans to the party which was happening you know in other words i get papen to tell the audience that Hitler, from his Mein Kampf royalties, was having to lend money to the party to keep it going. So it's all worked in that way. You know, I sort of contrived bits of, of diary and statement. I mean, I wish I wish people knew that. <laughs> yeah, well, they will now. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And, and the fact of the matter is that, of course, you know, there's much less difference between a practising historian and a historical playwright. There's simply no other way to be a historian, given how little we actually know about the past, than to, in fact, to imagine a certain amount of it. And most historians simply won't admit that. And that's not really very far from what you're doing as a playwright. Not so, not very different at all. Yeah, and I think, but I would hope that every single scene has at least one source that that says this is how it roughly happened at this moment. What I will plead guilty to is sometimes I'm willing to use the slightly more unreliable sources like Putsy Hamstagel, who was threatened with death by Goering, so ran at that point in about 36 or 37. So he had he had an axe to grind. 
Otto uh, Strasser wrote quite a salacious biography of those times, um, you know, and his brother Gregor was shot on the Night of the Long Knives, so he had a, an axe to grind. You know, and I think a lot of historians might say, take that with a pinch of salt. I, I didn't, I took it. <laughs> but not always, but, you know, at least you can argue that somebody who was there said this happened. We're talking to Jonathan Myerson, author of a new drama series for BBC's Radio 4, Nazis, The Road to Power. Do you want to run us through a few of your narrators? Because it's really interesting that you've chosen narrators to do two... Two, two podcast episodes that turns into a play, yes. yes. Um, so they come in pairs. So so first is, is, is Captain Carl Mayer, who was running army intelligence and wanted ordinary soldiers to go out there and influence their fellow soldiers to stop them turning into Bolsheviks. It's just after the Munich sort of quasi-Bolshevik revolution. And he picked, amongst other people, he, he selected Hitler, which is, and then said, I, I tell you what, Hitler, go and have a look at this German Workers' Party. Tell me, report back on them. And Hitler came back and said, I like them so much, I'll, I'll take over the party. <laughs> and there are only um, 20 of them or something, yeah. weren't there? There are only... <laughs> Um, he drifted to the to the left from that point on, got out of Germany uh, when Hitler became Chancellor, but was then captured in France in 1940. I mean, he'd moved to France and he died in Buchenwald in 45. Uh, you don't cross Hitler more than once. The second narrator is this, is this woman, Helene Beckstein, which pianists would know she'd married the heir to the Beckstein Piano Company. And I think she was a very early adopter of, of the full-on anti-Semitic uh, rants. I think it's 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 really interesting. I think that was a key determinant in people who who actually signed a check. I think they were full on anti semites She buys him a was, red Mercedes, doesn't she? She buys him a Mercedes, a record player, new new clothes. Mm. Couldn't stop him carrying his dog whip around. Um, <laughs> uh, but she really promoted him to people. Frau Bechstein, may I introduce her Adolf Hitler of the National Socialist German Workers' Party. I am quite aware of Herr uh, Hitler, the orator. Thoroughly at your service, milady. Really no need to bow, and you must call me Helen. Some people do find him, I don't know, a bit eccentric. He is quite a sight. A velour fedora and a tightly belted trench coat. Is that... Is that one of your pianos? Do take your coat off. Underneath, a shabby blue suit and a threadbare tie. And a belt with a revolver. Shall I hang this up here? That's probably best. Like something out of a gangster novel, in all honesty. Please come through. It's just our little soiree. We like to hold one every week when we're in town. <laughs> and he always carries a riding crop. Everywhere. Uh Sh shall I... It'll uh, be fine on there. No. Maybe I'll... Come and meet everyone. They're so keen to make your acquaintance. So that's quite early in the series, and you're able to use Helen Beckstein to explore Hitler, the awkward corporal, who's so surprised at his own success. I think it's very different with the next narrator. Yes, yes. There we get this chap, Ernst. He was, his nickname was Putsy, meaning little thing. Uh, he was about six foot four, Hamstegel. <laughs> and his, he was a German-American family. So he'd, I think it's his first years of schooling were in Germany, where his geography teacher was Himmler's father. Anyhow, we'll move on. Uh, <laughs> he then goes to America, goes to Harvard, gets to know 
Theodore Roosevelt's son or nephew. Hampstead was a very heavy-handed but good but heavy-handed pianist. He claims to have broken a piano in the White House uh, when visiting the Roosevelts. <laughs> um, he then sort of fell out with his brother. I think he was the younger brother. They, they, did, they did sort of art prints was their business. And so he went and decided to run the Munich branch. And according to his book, a, a Harvard friend who's running the... Um, the American embassy in Berlin says, who is this Hitler chap in, in Munich? Go and have a look at him. And Hans Segel goes to have a look at him. And in his own words, marched up to Hitler, after hearing a Hitler speech, said, and I agree with 95% of, of what you say. And I don't think the 5% included anti-Semitism again. And that line's in your... Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. So that, that's yeah. straight from his book. Yeah. It has to be said that the interest of the Americans in Germany in the 1920s continued into the 1930s under the Nazis, some cases right through the war. Well, that's a fascinating, some extent, untold story. One we're going to look at at some point in the History Cafe. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's, it's, it's confused. I mean, maybe people will say the same about, you know, trade that we did with Russia in the last 10 years. You know, were they trying to sort of normalise that country um, to some degree? Um, female characters, I've been wanting to ask you, how do you th- think Hitler regarded women? And can you put them all together? And how did they regard him? And I mean the people in his acquaintance, not I think he, the women. He, who he had... put women on a pedestal. He had these groups. They were known as the Hitler Mutti, the Hitler Mothers. Helen Beckstein was obviously the leader of the... I mean, they presumably were incredibly rivalrous. A couple of other millionaires and then less wealthy women. And they all made him... Because Hitler's weakness was cream cakes. Yeah. If we'd only known to sort of bombard Germany with cream cakes, we could have won the war in, in, in 39. Um uh, there's a marvellous description by Klaus Mann, son, son of Thomas, the novelist, uh, and a, a novelist in his own right, about suddenly being in a cafe and seeing Hitler eat. A- anyhow, I'm getting I'm And getting that's in your here. series, isn't it? He's stuffing his face yeah, while, yeah, while everyone gave, else gave, is talking. Well, there's an example, because I gave that <laughs> Klaus Mann thing to someone else. I can't remember who it is now. Um, anyhow, um, women, yes. And then you start talking about Hitler's relations with women of, so to speak, his own age, and it's it's a very confused picture I mean, he was clearly very uptight in the presence of women. You know, was he gay? It doesn't matter. Did he and Eva Brown have sex? It doesn't matter. You know, it's interesting stuff along the side. But he thought women should be kept in their own place, certainly. Um, uh, I was going to say, the Nazis, very traditional in their attitudes towards women. I mean, once they were in power. They were paid. Was it what well, they were paid? It's again, it's, it's, it's just after this series in sort of... Once Hitler took power in thirty-three, the big thing to reduce was unemployment, and I think they—I I can't remember whether they were given money or just not allowed to work. But you could reduce unemployment by getting women back in the home. Perfect. They were given—they were given medals and tax breaks, which of course was a, poli- it, yeah. was a policy that the uh, Germans uh, borrowed from the French. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, you'd, you'd do it now if you could. Absolutely, tax breaks those have always been used. Um, but I think—I mean, again, like the court of uh, Joseph Stalin, the court of Adolf Hitler was was do as I say, not not as I do, you know, that um, Goebbels, when he married Magda, uh, their prenup was that Goebbels was allowed to have affairs. But she wasn't. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. She just had to produce children whose names began with H every other year. Six of and them. She, was it six, I think? Five six, and a previous son by Herr Quant, Harald, uh, who, who mostly wasn't in the bunker that night. He was in the Luftwaffe by then. He's yeah, older. Yeah, meeting the night Goebbels and his wife committed suicide in the Führer bunker, first having killed all their children. What, the elder yes, was only yes, 14. Yes. Terrible. Yes, yes. I mean, that's another whole... I mean, what that underlines is that the, the Nazi party, 
you know, it, it had this death cult atmosphere to it, which again, I think appealed to a significant number of German voters. We're talking to Jonathan Myerson, the author of a new drama series for BBC's Radio 4, Nazis, The Road to Power. In your script, Hitler starts out certainly as a very confused person, a person who can't take decisions and then becomes very impetuous, a very curious mixture of somebody who seemed to know where he was going and somebody who seemed to have no idea where he was going. It reminds me of, of that debate amongst historians, whether Hitler knew all along what he was going to do or did they make it up as they were going along? From my point of view, that's true of any period and any figure in history. You could have that debate. It's not particular to Hitler. But I wonder what you stood on. I mean, you've, you've lived with these people for a while, for quite a long time. I mean, do you have the impression? Yeah, do you have Yeah. <laughs> do you have the impression that they knew where they were going from the beginning? I think what it was, was that they wanted power. They didn't have policies. You know, they didn't say you know, as as it were, modern, viable, democratic politicians have. You know, even the sainted Liz Truss had a policy. Didn't work, for the risk of understatement, but she had a policy. Whereas Hitler just wanted power. What was remarkable was Hitler's ability to hold back and not compromise. Thing is, Anton. who else... Anton, did... this strategy of his, a constant barrage of agitation, who... where does it end? Yeah, does who it else... go anywhere at all? Who else brings in money? Adolf can get it from his contact in the army and the collections after he's For God's sake, Chairman, we're all sick of tiptoeing round him. He's I... so bloody thin-skinned. He thinks everything's a conspiracy against him, so let's have one. Drexler calls a meeting, invites the German Socialist Party, invites the German workers' community. Surely we can work together. We all believe the same thing. No. Adolf, I actually think you should do them the courtesy of entering into negotiations. It's clearly in violation of our party statutes. You wish to hand the movement over to a man whose ideas are wholly repugnant to uh, all honest uh, national uh, socialist uh, workers. Uh, Adolf, I hardly... Not, I cannot not... any longer remain a member of such a movement. Now, surely... I resign. Gonna... I hereby resign from the Nazi party. <sighs> So in a sense, the answer to your question is sort of both yes and no, because it wasn't like in 1924 or in 1929, they had a set of policies and then they enacted them when they got into power. They didn't really do anything when they got into power apart from get more power, which is why the, the, the war was inevitable, because that's how you got more power over the rest of Europe. Yeah, I, I suppose you have to ask about uh, Mein Kampf. I, in Mein Kampf, he sets out a pretty clear vision of going east I was always struck, and when uh, those days long ago when I had to teach the Nazis, I was always struck first of all at how um, consistent they were. Crazy, mad, insane ideas about uh, racial purity and about their lands lying in the East and those kinds of things. But they were weirdly consistent about it. Yes, so that, that is the consistent line. I suppose, why am I not calling that a policy? It's more like a sort of, it's a goal. It's almost like a blood goal, isn't it? It's not like saying, I mean, you know, in other words, they were obsessed. The Nazi parties, and I think a lot of Germany, possibly after the the um, privations in the First World War, with food supply, They're, you know. So, I think a more, as it were, balanced democratic politician would have said, "We need to solve Germany's food supply problem." And then, okay, I'm Chancellor in 1933. I'm going to do a trade deal with Ukraine or with Russia. I'm going to do a trade deal with Italy, and I'm going to make sure we have these secure. But what Hitler did was he just stuck with the idea, "I'm going to capture a lot of them." 
and we'll take their food and Ukrainians and Czechs will starve, but that's fine. In other words, it wasn't a policy. It was it was kind of like an end point that was justified by a need. I mean, a perfectly justifiable need, uh, an anxiety about food supply in Germany. But it was it was power goals that he was after rather than... So there was justifications for various things, but not a coherent policy to get them. I mean, in fact, a deeply incoherent policy, capture them and fight for them. Interesting how this appeals to things that are deep within German society, isn't it? I mean, historians talk about discourses, if you're French, you talk about mentalité. You talk about the things that are in people's brains that, that affect what happened. And hearing the plays, you, you are always tantalisingly in getting these glimpses of the things that are going on in people's minds, the things that lead them to be interested in Hitler, the things that he appeals to, the sense of there's these other questions that are going on beyond this immediate circle. I mean, what, uh, did you get a feeling of what it was like to be in Germany in those days? I think it was very febrile in the sense of lots of things were being tried um i mean there was there was certainly in berlin and possibly the other big cities an incredible openness to homosexuality um you know which would compare with britain in the i was going to say 60s possibly not even 70s you know there were many different strains of thought i mean it was culturally very vibrant certainly in the big cities but you had this sort of dogged rural section I mean, maybe someone would look at Britain and say much the same. And I think it was very confused because they couldn't form a government that could hold together. They kept being buffeted. I mean, if you look at the number of world events that opened the door to Hitler and, you know, the Wall Street crash, the Depression, and then capital movement, so Germany suddenly couldn't get its loans. French prime ministers being elected on the basis of, of enforcing reparations. It's a train of incredible luck coupled with Hitler's manic ability to not compromise. I mean, that's where you have to say, so to speak, given his goals, he was impressive. He didn't compromise. Um, and he, he took it to the edge each time and somehow got away with it. Your narrators, as we've mentioned, are written from within the inner circle of Hitler. Um, and so we see everything through their eyes. But does that give you a problem with something like I think in one of the earlier episodes, they're talking about what we know as the Fry Corps, you know, the, the sort of thugs, the, the lawless paramilitary yeah. thugs. But, you know, they're very reasonable in the eyes of your characters. They are called the Citizens Brigades, nice people going out on the streets and making sure that everything <laughs> goes the right way. Yeah. But if you don't really know the history, you wouldn't really know that many of these are the guys who will soon end up becoming Nazi stormtroopers and that they're anything but nice people calmly keeping things in order. Let me tell you, Helen, we were outnumbered, hopelessly. Oh, They'd all hidden beer mugs under the tables, storing them up as ammunition. Well, that's appalling! But my stormtroops, just 46 of them, they pushed the Reds right out. Pushed out? Out of the windows, off the balcony. Did people... Captain Röhm calls it his meeting hall technique communists didn't know what hit them is it i mean yes i think it's uh, i think it was partly i was as a dramatist i was i was boxed in by the facts themselves in the sense that um and i think the, the, the absolutely crucial thing is you know the nazi party was very small it was only munich uh munich and bavaria uh, um, actually did better in Bavaria than the city of Munich, but based in Munich and not heard of by many people. And therefore, when I toyed with who could be observing it, it made no sense that anyone else would have noticed it. 
what I'm able to do in the second half of the series when the Nazi party sadly gets bigger is that I think three of the last four narrators are journalists. And they, so there's an American journalist, a lady called Dorothy Thompson, and then the Daily Express man in Berlin who was called Sefton Delma. And therefore it makes sense. Prior to that, you know, in the, the sort of early to mid-20s, nobody had heard of the Nazi parties out, outside Munich. So that was my first problem as a, as a, as a dramatist. What's a reasonable person to notice this? and to be aware of them. And then I thought it'd be interesting because that's what I want to get into the mentality of what it felt like to be a Nazi. So yes, you're, you're absolutely right. The price I pay is that we're not painting something like the citizen, what I call the citizen brigades, the Freikor, who are sort of ex, ex-army thugs, really, by and large. Ex-army people. Actually, quite a lot were young men who hadn't made it. Into, I mean, were too young to have fought in the First World War and they wanted to do a bit of fighting like their elder brothers. So yes, you're right. They probably... You know, you, you've then got to explain that they had to snap all the dead bodies, bones of the dead bodies to fit them into crates to ship them out of Munich. You can leave it at that. But one thing I, you know, early days and people were muting different titles for the thing. The one word I will not allow is the word evil. I don't mean in the title, I mean anywhere. It's not evil, it's human behaviour. There is no such thing as evil. It's, it's how do you get to this point of behaviour? So obviously, if you're running the Fry Corps and you're British, you're going to say, we're the citizen brigade. We are, we're acting on behalf of the citizen. I mean, never trust any politician who talks about citizens. <laughs> you know? um, uh, last refuge of a scoundrel. Eh? Yeah, absolutely. In particular, you have a, a, an issue with anti-Semitism. Uh, I don't mean you have an issue. Well, I mean, the, the plays have an issue with anti-Semitism. Obviously, because you're listening to what's going on, the inner conversations of the Nazi party, you have a, a lot of outright anti-Semitism. Extraordinary the BBC is carrying these things. And I wonder what the production process was that where you have to persuade people to allow you to say these things without any immediate balance. If you just happen to turn on in the middle of this and you hear this rant going on, you think, what's the BBC doing carrying this anti-Semitic material? I mean, what's, what's no, going on? No, 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 one, no one has raised that, actually, as an issue. You know, David Baddiel and I agree on this, you know. You can you can say that. People don't worry about that. I'm afraid it's just not an issue. I, I could go back to a play I did for the BBC about George Bush Sr. getting elected and his campaign advisor said a famous thing which included how you use the N-word. Same script. I had the Y-word for Jews. Back came the editorial thing. Can we lose the N-word? Not a comment on the Y-word. Wow. Bizarre. Isn't that bizarre? You have a Jewish background. I mean, how, how does that make you feel about people's attitudes? Or does it make you feel, it's fine, we can talk about these things, and people are sophisticated enough when they yeah, listen? I, 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 yes, I think they are. And I think it's, 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 I'm not a great fan of the sort of the culture of grievance where you, you complain about things. And let's face it, if, if you try to make a, a drama about the rise of Hitler without mention. and had to lose... Every single anti-Semitic reference. Well, I think it's 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 game over, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, I think I think possibly the answer to your question is the excess is actually the answer to the the, the, the thing. If it was an yeah. occasional remark, I mean, there is actually a, an occasional remark when the French reoccupied the Ruhr in twenty three. Twenty Either accidentally or on purpose, they used some of their West African troops. Yeah. And Germans did not like that at all. Or yeah. there was a significant number of Germans. And so I've given that to that line to a couple of Nazis. Um, Interesting. I don't yeah. use the N-word, but I get very close to it. Um, yeah. And yeah. I'm expecting complaints. 
because it's a sort of occasional remark i think you know where people might be offended whereas because basically you're absurdly anti-semitic from episode one to episode 16 you're in business i think yeah and i suppose if you put words into the mouth of hitler i suppose it immediately discredits them so yes i think that's the thing that's why i didn't i didn't feel i had to worry at any stage about am i giving the 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 nazis a a soft time or am i getting into their heads and 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 liking them they're nazis for christ's sake (laughs) (laughs) end of story you don't really need to explain anymore they're they're pre-sale Saves me. Yeah, <laughs> pre sale. That's brilliant. I, I, th- oh, I, I think at that point, uh, congratulations. Yeah, on, uh, congratulations. And um, I mean, presumably, you'll now move on from the Nazis and do something else, or are you now committed? To maybe something on the thirties. Um, well, actually, I mean, I wouldn't mind doing part two, thirty-three onwards. I have to say, a lot of interesting yeah. things going on there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, and I think it'd be really interesting, wouldn't it, to do what did Hitler describe as the most tense night of his life? was when he reoccupied the Rhineland. Mm. His troops were ordered not to fight. They were ordered to retreat if the French had sent in one division. Because the German army knew it didn't have the personnel to deal with it. If they'd been opposed, they it would did, have... It just couldn't couldn't have coped. It. And, mm. You know, it would have been... So the most tense night of his life... So, you know, let's be in his... Let's be with him. I mean, we always see Czechoslovakia, you know, the Munich and Croydon Airport, peace in our time always from the British point of view and the British establishment and Whitehall, mm. I would love to be in the room there with, with Hitler and, and Goebbels, you know, working it. Can they pull it off? If they don't, it's all going to collapse. Everything will collapse. Mm. Another interesting place to be would be uh, during the supposed invasion of Britain, which we've done a whole series yeah, on. And, yeah, yeah. and, and yeah, absolutely, what, that. was that actually going, ever going to happen? Uh, well, we argue in our podcast it was never going to happen, and the and the, no. and, the, and, the, and the Nazi regime knew that, but they weren't going to say that out loud. And nor, interestingly, was Churchill. No, absolutely, and I think I think all those about firstly the sort of moments were very tight and close, but also um, Hitler's daily injections from Doctor Morell, who God knows what he was pumping into him in those years. Again, yeah, not to speak of what they side. were pumping into Goering as well. But I mean, oh yeah, because Goering gets he, yes, he gets wounded in your. First yes, episodes, yes, doesn't he? Gets, he? he gets yeah. shot and uh, never, yeah. never, never kicks the morphine habit that. again. Really, that's right. yeah. it's been absolutely fascinating. Yes. We've talked way beyond. Yeah, no, we've talked way beyond your series, but that's really, <laughs> really, really, really interesting stuff. And it's been so good to have your mind on these. Can things. I just round this up and mm. say that we've been talking to Jonathan Myerson, author of a new drama series for Radio Four, Nazis: The Road to Power. Go and find it. There are 70 evergreen podcasts now at the History Cafe and reading lists for every one of them. You can find them on our website, historycafe.org, and you can also sign up for a weekly newsletter. We're also on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and many other platforms. Just look out for History Cafe Podcasts with John and Penelope. And beware of imitations. Follow our regular blog at History Cafe Pod and spread the word. Spread the word.